This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. We've got a busy day. We have, we have. You know, I spoke with Francesca Rendell-Short a few years back about her personal story of growing up in Queensland. And it was the time of Joe Bilek... Bajelki. Oh, thank you, Petersons. And he had conservative politics. But there was even more severe censorship within um, Francesca's own family. And that book was Bite Your Tongue. So welcome. Thank you, Jan. Lovely to be here. This is a very different book to that. Yes, it is. <laughs> You've worked with David Carlin on this volume two of The Near and the Far. What's it about? The Near and the Far, we're very, very excited with this. So volume one was also called The Near and the Far. We were hoping that there was going to be a volume two and um, along this one came. So this is a very exciting project which represents a, a program that we've been running at RMIT University for something like five or six years now where we're really interested in the Asia-Pacific region, so how Australia fits and sits in literary sense and in a, in a, a kind of a producing writer sense in this um, part of the world. And it's a program that connects Australian writers um, with writers from the region, from writers, so writers from a whole a whole range of, of countries. So as far north as um, South Korea, right up um, what you'd call sort of Northern Asia, I suppose, um, India, and then close to home, Indonesia, um, Papua New Guinea, um, West Timor, etc. Something like 13 countries are represented here of writers from those countries in this book called The Near and the Far, Volume 2. Well, how long did they spend together? So this is a program where it's based on a residency exchange model. So um, what's happened over the last um, six years is that a group of writers have come together to to write together in a sort of an inward-looking, sort of focused um, residency model where we go somewhere. So, for instance, I'll give you an example. Last year, um, a group of us went to... Indonesia, so to Jakarta um, and to Jogjakarta. Jogjakarta for the residency and then we went to Jog to Jakarta for a series of events. So the first important part of this program is that the writers get together and write in the same space. It's, it's, it's an, the idea of being in the company of other writers to do your writing. It's a very um, intimate thing to do but it's, it's a sharing of work, of culture and out of that conversation grows, um, cultural kind of exchange grows and then the writing that comes out of it um, emerges and blossoms as well and some of the works in this book are actually a result of those connections that were made in different parts of the Asia-Pacific region. Now you talk about the emerging writers but they're not just emergent writers. You've got no. some very well-known writers here. You mentioned that in the first volume there was Kate Kennedy and Jennifer Dar. Mm -hmm. And this time, Christos Chalakis and Alice Pong. Yes. So um, there's some wonderful writers in here. So Christos, um, Ali Cobby Eckerman, Michelle Lee, mm. um, Omar Musa. No, Omar was in the first um, volume. Uh, Ellen Van Neven. Um, so some wonderful mm. Australian writers. But then in this incredible array of Asia-Pacific writers, which Australian audiences um, – 
aren't so um, so they're not so known in Australia, but becoming more well known. So a wonderful writer, for example, from Indonesia, a poet called Norman Erickson Pasaribu, who was with us, um, who went with us to. Um, was it Indonesia or the Philippines? One or the other. I think it was the Philippines. And now he's been picked up by Duramondo Press. So oh. his first collection of poetry is being produced by Duramondo this year. So that's a very lovely um, sort of outcoming, if you like, of this exchange where we first met uh, uh, Norman um, in the Philippines. He worked with Christos. So, yes, it was the Philippines. And he had never travelled before. He'd never gone outside Indonesia before. This incredible up-and-coming poet who then, through this experience of rice, through the um, the residency that we did in Vigam, which is right at the north of the Philippines, and then through the writing that he produced, has now become quite a star. So he was just yeah. recently at the Melbourne Writers' Festival in 2019, and he was a star performer. Oh. Um, and it's just really wonderful to see a writer like that take off, so to speak. Well, um, Christos Chalakas said his whole little bit in Melbourne, even though he was writing in all these other places, and his fictional character still desires socialisation, drinking and sex. But sensing he was also growing old, he lost his parents, he's losing his lover, and perhaps becoming conservative. It made sense that Christos called this one birthday. What was he celebrating? Um, yes, I think this is an extraordinary piece. So this is the piece that opens the collection from Christos. And what was amazing about Christos is that he came with us to the Philippines and we went and stayed at Vigan and it was a very interesting place, very up the north of um, the Philippines. And it was actually celebrating a religious um, ceremony of the time, St. Paul, which was along the lines of what his new book is about, mm. his new book that's about to hit mm. the streets called Damascus. So he wrote some of Damascus while we were in Vigan in the Philippines. But was it, what was interesting is this piece coming out of that experience. And that's often the way, isn't it, that you're travelling and you're away from home, but it actually takes you back home and um, that that piquancy of, of turning 50, of being a different person to what he was when he was younger, then provoked and um, sort of inspired this, this particular story. It's a ripper. Yeah. And, and Alice Pangna, we know a, a lot about mm. her writing and her... The type of writing she does was seriously criticised by another writer, Michelle Law Lee, who sort of said, well, she's writing as the stereotypical good girl migrant. I'm going to write as something different. And that was pretty shocking, wasn't it, going mm. down? Mm. Yes. It was. So we've got both those works um, in this book. So um, Alice Pung, obviously, you know, lots of people know her work. She came with us to China um, and she's written this piece um, from real life, so to speak, a sort of a non-fiction piece about um, an occasion when she found a very um, racist piece of literature oh. on the bonnet of her car coming out of a supermarket. It's um, it's a very moving piece, a very troubling mm. piece, a, a piece that goes to the to the heart of what I what I think is you know a, a, a real problem here in Australia. And then Michelle Lee, of course, she's a playwright, a different kind of generation. She also also came with us to China. So she and Alice were together um, in Guangzhou 
Guangzhou and Yangtze in China, and she's written this incredible um, nonfiction work as well. Both of them, yeah, teetering on that sort of nonfiction fiction space, um, and it's her experience of writing her first um, her first memoir, which and so this piece going down was also produced for the Malthouse. It was mm. produced as a play. Very at strong. The Malthouse. Very strong. Yeah, very strong. <laughs> really good. Uh, look, there's difficulties too because some of these writers had to be translated. That's right. And then you get a writer who actually writes about the uh, translators is exploring the bilingual twist of the tongue. Mm. I like that. And, of course, then there was another writer who wrote not about the need to be translating but the need to actually voice her disability, mm. her hearing loss. I thought that was yeah. fascinating. Yeah, Fiona Murphy. Oh. Yes, yeah, so the translation was very exciting because in our first book we didn't have translations, whereas in this book we were able to do work in translation. So a number of these writers were writing in their first language and then we had the... Um, the opportunity, the chance to translate them. So you, you're reading them in English. And, I mean, translation and language, obviously, in an exchange like this is right at the heart of what we're talking about because writers come to this um, program multilingual. Um, you know, they have first, second, third, fourth mm-hmm. languages, but obviously we're communicating in English and needing to, to find a way to connect. Um, but that question of language is just so fantastic. You know, what happens when you write in first language language and then what happens in translation Mm. sometimes things are easier to write in English even though that's not your first language because you can say things that you can't say in your first language so there's lovely lovely sort of inter interstitial spaces that the writers get into and this this book allows that to come out um, which is really great look things you can't say and Mm. let's talk about some of the um, Pacific writers now the heartbreak survival guide for young poets also uh, translated, but it's a gay breakup, and it hints at the trying and tearful times ahead mm. for homosexuals in Indonesia. Mm. Now we get that little hint there: fire, light, and air. Having a Muslim identity by this one character, but being challenged by a more Islamic lifestyle, mm. and we really worry about Hector's choices. What he's going to do? I think oh. what was really interesting about this program is that sometimes when um, a, a single writer comes from a single country. There's there's the trap that they um, that people think that they then represent the, the the country and that they are everything that that country is. What was exciting about this program, particularly in our relationship with Indonesia, was that we were able to have a number of different writers participate in this program from Indonesia. And obviously, Indonesia is this giant country with a giant number of different sort of points of view and different kind of cultures within it. And that was able to be explored and expressed in in this book. That nuance, which is what you're talking about here then a, a, a big change this one writer who's lived around the world but she grew up in china and her connection with nature was really having training chickens to walk down three flights of stairs mm. and then at night time coming back up three night flights of stairs and pecking on the door yeah. <laughs> that is weird yes <laughs> It was a lovely story. And a lot of these countries, these Pacific countries, have magic realism mm. as, as a strength. And we get a few of those, like the house that has scorpions, snakes, geckos and a ghost. And then the Sri Lankan folkloric mm. tale about a mother who so wishes for a son that she goes to a mystic mm. and the son arrives 
there's problems. And, oh, that, that, that was fantastic. And the last story was Wherever You Are, this poet that has included a little of everybody's stories. That was phenomenal. Joshua Ip. Joshua Ip from Singapore is the most extraordinary writer. So he does what's, what he called digestives, where he actually does them in performance, but he did this specially for this book. So in performance, what will happen is that he will hear writers speaking. He did this at the Melbourne Writers' Festival, actually, just recently. And then he digests what they say and, and returns their words um, through his poetic his poetic sensibility and poetic lens back to the writers. So this last chapter is a chapter where he read all the work and then made what he calls a digestive of the of the work to offer. But they're so beautiful, so distilled, so sort of perfectly formed, if you like, yeah. that gives you this this beautiful sort of insight into the complexity of the relationships as well as the individual um, stories oh, themselves. I it was just a lovely yeah, little wrap, brilliant. wrap around. You know, I thought it was just brilliant. But we are going to go back to one story. You know, what parents can teach you? And this is uh, Peter Climes talked about his father teaching him how to do fly fishing. And he said he wrote a love song to carp and gave a special thanks to you, Francesca Rendell, short. So how did you help the writers? So this is Peter Climes. He came with us to uh, China. He's an emerging writer. Uh, a songwriter plus a non-fiction writer. I mean, and this is a beautiful piece. It's it's quite an extraordinary piece. I was just reading it in the in the green room just then. Again, a piece that um, explores his his fly fishing and his love of of carp and rainbow fish and fishing, but also this this dynamic with his father mm. and his and his own sense of self as well. Peter's own sense of self and sexuality, and it's it's a piece that leaves you on edge the mm. whole way through. Well, my part in it, yes, um, bless, um, is that he he was a student at RMIT. He's one of our star students. We've got lots of star <laughs> students, but he's one of them. And um, and he did honours, and I was his supervisor for his <gasps> honours project. And um, I had a wonderful year working with with Peter, and this work came out of uh, came out of that um, that project, that research project that he was doing. And it's a beautiful distillation of that year's work. Yeah, so I'm I'm really pleased that he was able to um, get it in, and it was part of the collection. Yeah, really thrilled. We hadn't mentioned that this this uh, hol- not holiday. It's a writing agenda. It's called WR Ice. Yes, rice. So it's called the Writers' Immersion and Cultural Exchange. So W R I C E rice, um, and this is this exchange that I'm talking about, which is part of the RMIT um, Writing and Publishing Program, um, and it's been going for six years or so. David Carlin, who's also involved mm. in, involved with this, gave us an invitation to linger with each other and each other's words, mm. and you. Francesco Rentalshort gave us said it was heart work. Yes, um, David and I, as editors, we wrote a piece at the end of this book, a sort of a conversation, if you like, a conversation out loud about this program and trying to, you know, trying to lift the cover of it, trying to sort of look in underneath. Um, what has gone on across these years to sort of figure out what's the the magic here. And we actually call it magic because I think there is something magical about what happens when you get writers in the same room talking about 
their writing, their culture, the context from which they come, and writers from all ages and from all experiences as well, and the gift exchange that happens um, across across the table. And what writers need are readers. Mm, they so, are. Have a look at uh, Francesca Randall Short and David Carlin's collection of The Near and the Far, Volume 2, published by Scribe. And now I've got a pre-record that I did with Astrid Scholt, a young adult fantasy writer. Astrid Scholt takes us into a fascinating world of a country of four kingdoms with four queens and a statement of queenly law that keeps everything in check in her debut novel. So, (laughs) Astrid, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. You have four quadrants in this realm that you've created and they sort of keep each other in balance. Archia, agriculture, Ionia, technology, Toria, commerce, Ludia, the arts. Mm. It's a fascinating sort of uh, world you've created, and I'll just sort of read the explanation here. Quadara's divided nation was an ecosystem, each quadrant playing its part. Archia provided crops and natural resources. Ionia developed medicine and technology. Ludia provided art, fashion and entertainment. And Toria arranged imports and exports between the quadrants, and queenly law upheld the system. Now, I'm just wondering how closely this reflects real life in many ways, this interdependency. Yeah, I think it does in a sense with the country, you know, provides, the country is similar to Archaea, that it provides crops, resources, food for the city, and where the city is more focused perhaps on technology, medicine, sometimes arts and culture. So I think that's probably the closest that we get to that divide. Otherwise, we are much more mixed and our focus is, is much Archaea more blended. But has shunned technology in a way. They have, yes. They see it as the enemy. They've seen the way that technology has basically pillaged the land in other regions. So they want to make sure that that doesn't happen to their resources because they're the only quadrant left that has crops and animals and an abundance of nature. Well, I'm just thinking of certain cultures or certain groups in America and mm. uh, and such like that still do that as well. That's true, yeah. It's not unheard of in <laughs> today's society. But it also makes these quadrants fairly fragile because they need each other. Yes. And this can lead to a bit of intrigue or vulnerability. Definitely. But I think it also, because they need each other, they have to work together. They have to work collaboratively, which is why the queens are there to look after their own quadrant, but also to make sure as a nation, Quadara is peaceful and as a whole. But there's always something that uh, sort of upsets the apple cart, so to yes. speak, uh, and a bit subversive. And one of the things that adds to the subversion is this overarching queenly law. And you've laid this out at the beginning. But one of the laws is that a queen is forbidden to marry. And you have a form of repression. She's got to produce an heir. That's right, yes. But she can't marry. And this form of repression can lead to subversive activity, shall we say. (laughs) Yes, I think... For Quadara, it came from the background that there were origi- there was originally a king and he had four wives. And that caused a lot of drama, <laughs> as it would. <laughs> and also it, it, they saw it as a way of dividing basically their focus. So with the idea that they can't marry, it's essentially ruling out love, more so than the idea of, of marriage itself. It's saying you must focus on your quadrant and your people. That is your one position 
as a queen, and that's your duty. Our hero is Carolee, a yes. dipper, and she's involved not just in pickpocketing, but in a much larger scheme, unwittingly, of course, yes. of a bit of political intrigue. What can you tell us about Carolee? Well, Carolee, she's 17 years old. She's one of the best dippers in her region of Toria. She works for an unsavoury sort of character. His name's Machiel, and he's the head of the black market in Toria. And she loves what she does. She's very good at it. She's quick-witted. She's charming. She's sassy. She knows to get how to get what she wants. And it's she's wrapped up in a very innocent-looking package, but she's certainly not innocent by any means. Not innocent, and she's also manipulated. Very much so. She She's best friends with Machiel, so she's grown up with him and she believes the best in him and wants to believe the best in him, but she is therefore led astray when he starts looking into more, yeah, unsavory Nefarious sort of situations. Now, the mm. story begins with Carolee stealing a comm case, and you're going to have to explain that because there are comms and there are chips, which I find fascinating. What can you tell us there? So the com case is essentially a case that holds these chips, these communication chips. And these chips are translucent discs that when you put on your tongue, it dissolves and it travels to your brain and attaches essentially to your senses. So you see whatever was recorded onto the chip, the memory, as if it were your own memory, as if you were there in that time and place you can see, you can taste, you can smell everything around you as if it were real. But that then leads uh, further to this notion of what your reality is, what you can recollect, what you can't right. recollect, and how you know that what you sense is your own. Yes, exactly. And and with memories, sometimes, you know, especially with dreams, you have that kind of feeling of, is this real, is it not? Especially when it so, feels so real, you can smell it, you can taste it, you can sense it. Now, there are two things about this uh, memory chip that I want to go into. First, uh, Varen or Varen, who's Carolee's uh, partner in crime, <laughs> shall yes. we speak, he's got a lovely little sort of side hobby in using these chips of other people's memories as a basis for art. Yep. Form of impressionism, right. really. <laughs> Varen's from Eonia, which are very logical, ordered and so to then have this abstract art in yes. him is, is fascinating. It's, but also then we have the recollection Carolee goes through because she's stolen a comms case. And I don't think I'm giving anything away uh, no. when I say she actually uh, takes the chips. What are you going to do when somebody corners you? And yeah, you've got... she's, she's, she has no other option but to take them to try and survive, to make herself valuable to Machiel. Images flickered through my mind like the queenly report, reports screened at the Concorde, only they were transmitted in red. No, that wasn't right. The pictures were in colour, but they were slick with blood. It was as though the red veil had been lowered over my eyes. The flickering slowed, scenes lingered, images came into focus. A column of pale, unblemished skin, a slender silver knife. One quick slice, a mouth opens to form a scream, blood rushing from a deep groove, a chasm of red. Then liquid gold turning red, first stagnant, then moving, splashing, swirling, splattering over tiles, as though the liquid is alive. A head of dark hair submerges. A golden crown sinks to the floor. One last breath. A body turns limp, rising to the surface. Carolee is actually seeing the death yes. of the four queens. Yes. And so she is experiencing it. Now, here we get to the structure of this story. 
because the queens are still alive. Yes. So you've got the, the two threads going simultaneously. Two, yeah, the two different timelines. So you have the points of view of the queens, which are interspersed with Carolee's points of view. So when Carolee ingests the chips, the queens are dead. And then you get to see from the queen's point of view how that actually happened and get to witness it um, on the page. So it's, it's really not uh, so much will the queens die, but how... How and why? Why? Uh, what well, were they? What secrets were they keeping? They're and, all keeping quite a few. And they're all keeping quite a few. We're, we're mm. sort of getting into their own personal intrigue uh, of the queens, but also then there's this Machiavellian. Interestingly enough, Machiavelli. Mm. Did you yeah. think of? <laughs> no, Ma- I didn't. <laughs> Maybe subconsciously. <laughs> Subcon- the Machiavelli. You must have swallowed somebody's chip in in that case. <laughs> uh, a Machiavellian scheme to some. Uh, well take over uh, the kingdoms and such like Mm. for their own nefarious purposes. Now, I don't want to say too much there because let the reader discover these things for themselves and how it all interrelates uh, with memory, with the action that takes place, with the queenly law and how that is subverted. I want to move on, if I may. In your acknowledgements at the end, you actually thank your behavioural optometrist as you were once unable to read or write. Yes. Fascinating. Yeah, it was a very dark time, Um, no pun intended. Uh, It was, yeah, a few years ago, or probably probably more, like almost 10 years ago actually, that I had some vision issues. I was working... uh, in film and TV. I still work in film and TV, but as a consultant. So I was working directly for production companies and I had an allergic reaction and it it actually made the muscles in my eyes swell. And when they came back down, they didn't know how to focus anymore. And it took about a year to get that diagnosis from a behavioral optometrist that that was what had happened and that I needed to retrain the muscles in my eyes to focus, and yeah, during that time, I did not read or write. Wow, I was assuming because my background's in teaching, and I've come across kids that have needed coloured lenses. Yes, um, I tried those ones. Yeah, yes. the blue lenses uh, to try and help them refocus mm. because there are a lot of issues with uh, children, and I thought maybe that was your case but no. something completely different yes yeah oh. just out of the blue and you know I had never wore glasses before that now I wear glasses for computer work and reading uh, so didn't 100% get back to where I was but so much better than I had been at the time it sort of uh, well subverts undermines the, the questions I had because I was thinking perhaps you'd learnt a visual form of communication right. initially uh, if it went back to your childhood, but it no, obviously doesn't. No. So, But you then have been involved in animation and things like that. Do yes. you see things before you write things, or how, do you, how does that work? I do, and I find that I can't write unless I can see the scene in my head as a movie. And the actual inspiration for Four Dead Queens came to me in a dream like a movie. So I do think and brainstorm quite visually and quite cinematically and that's something that I then try and recreate on the page for the reader so that it it does read like a film might play out. It's interesting, you know, what comes first, whether it's the words or the images and depending Mm. on who you talk to, you can get a different reaction from people, which is fascinating. Well, 
thank you very much, Astrid, for that background. Four dead queens, a well sort of visualised <laughs> kingdom of four quadrants. The book is released by Alan and Unwin and Astrid Schult, Four Dead Queens. Thank you very much, Astrid. Thank you so much. And I was talking with Francesca Rendell Short about the compilation of sh- of stories written by the um, artists, uh, the writers, The Near and the Far, Volume 2. And by Scribe. And by Scribe. And by Scribe. Now, we've got a little secret. Somebody has been in this studio for the last five weeks <laughs> listening in. Yes. I'd like to introduce you to the voice of Carla. What on earth have you been doing for the last... Five weeks, Scarlett. I have been the wallflower here. I've just been sitting in the corner minding my own business. But why? I'm not sure. I love radio. I wanted to see you guys do your thing. (laughs) (laughs) But it's to do with Swinburne, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been here with uh, Swinburne um, just to get some experience. But it's been so amazing. (laughs) What has been amazing about it? Uh, the entire experience of it, getting to see you guys interview people and, you know, be passionate about what you do and um, getting to see, yeah. So what tricks of the trade are you going to take with you? Cool. Uh, in Back to Swinburne, but also then back to your career in uh, I guess not being awkward as an interviewer. I'm a journalist by, by trade and I guess my whole thing is being quite stoic when I interview people, like question one, question two. I don't really, I'm not a, I'm not a flowy sort of gal, so. Well, we're just... Actually, going to have to. We're going to have to flow out. Flow, flow out. That was one of the Carla's questions. How do you end an interview? Like we've just this. we've just done it because we've got ruminations coming in. That's our general line to conclude. Ruminations are coming in, so we'll see you all next week. You've just been listening to published or not on Three CR. You've been listening to a Three CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station Three CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.